A reading from the prophet Samuel. And now when the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. May this be instruction for the people, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have wrought all of this greatness so that your servant may know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is no one like you, and there is no God besides you according to all we have heard with our ears. This is the word of the Lord. 
Hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we, uh, we think of this text out of David's life, that you would help us to know how we might understand it and pull it into our own lives and our community as we seek to follow you and dwell in your midst and you dwell among us. So meet us, we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, one of the questions as I've thought about this text over the last week is just a very simple question. How do you live with your success? How do you live with your wealth? How do you live uh, in those experiences in your life when things go according to plan, or maybe they go better than according to plan, what do you do with that reality? That is David's reality in this particular moment. Um, and you could also think about the opposite. It's also obviously important. We've been thinking about it over the last few weeks. What do you do with those opposite experiences of loss, of poverty, of sickness, of loneliness? In other words, what does it mean for you, for you and for us together to live as human beings across the various kinds of experiences that happen to us in life. And they're varied, right? I mean, they, they cover the gamut. Sometimes they're moments of profound beauty and glory and goodness and greatness. And sometimes they're just obviously mediocre. And sometimes they tip into spaces of loss and grief and great pain and suffering. How do you live in those realities as a person, as someone who reflects the likeness of God back into your world, regardless of what's happening to you. So we're looking at David's life story uh, this summer, and we're leaping over a, a rather large chunk of his story here, right? Because remember last week, where were we? We were in the cave, right? And remember that moment? David is anointed king, but he's not enthroned, and in that space, he's suffering, he's running from Saul, who seeks his life. He's hiding in the back of, you know, the, the cave that becomes a toilet. Remember the story? Um, and now we've leaped into this far grander moment, right? David lives in a house of cedar. Right? This is not a cave. This is a man who has succeeded. His kingdom has come. There's this lull in the story, so to speak, in this particular moment. Robert Alter says that it is in this lull that it tips, it moves in a different direction, and it becomes a moment, and this is commonplace for almost all of us, when you have a lull in some type of conflict, what do you do? You daydream. You sort of think, what could the future be like? And that's exactly where we find David in this particular moment of his life looking in this space or sitting in this space of uh, ease, of success, of accomplishment, of wealth, and beginning to reflectively dream about the kingdom that is before him, that is ahead of him. 
Walter Brueggemann says that this particular chapter in all of the Hebrew Scripture, which is a really remarkable statement, I think, that he's about to make, uh, he says this particular chapter may be like the core expression of evangelical faith as you find it in the Old Testament Scriptures. Like, that's a remarkable thing to claim for a text like this. So let's think about what it teaches us, not only about David's dreams of his life with God, but also uh, perhaps for our own. So I want to focus on three things. So David's dream, secondly, God's gift, and then finally, David's dwelling. So dream, gift, and dwelling. David's dream. He is enthroned and he is empowered. This is the space that we find him in with all of the wealth and the privilege that comes with success like that. The Ark of the Covenant has been brought back by his initiative uh, to Jerusalem, right? Uh, And since uh, Israel's exodus, right, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, has been the sort of the symbolic center of Israel, right? It's the, the very way in which Israel knows that God is in their midst. And so the metaphor of God's presence, the reality of his presence, that symbolic presence has been brought back into the very center of Israel's political life, right? Their civic life, their social life, right there in the midst, uh, God dwelling in their midst. And as David thinks about this particular moment, there's an obvious contrast. David's got a really nice house. God, not so nice a house, right? It's like tent versus home of a a mansion, right? That's That's the picture that we have here in this particular text. And it's a little bit disturbing, perhaps, to David. Maybe it's disconcerting. Maybe the inequality feels really obvious to him. But he he begins to think, you know, what would it be like to, to build God a great house? What would that look like? What would happen with that? Now, you may think about this as modern folks, and you think, you know, what What's so great about a church building, right? We, we don't sort of think about that in the same way these days. I, I would, I've, I've, I've pastored many, many different churches, and boy, from congregation to congregation, we think about space differently in all across the space, especially in the evangelical side of the world. Uh, we, we kind of downplay the importance of these things. But in reality, we actually do spend money on that which we value. We give our resources to build things that house our deepest values that speak of something permanent. And when David looks on his life, he sees that he lives in a grand house in the Ark of the the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant is not in a grand house. God is not in a grand house. Now, translate that into our culture. What do we spend money on? What do we value? What are the temples that we build in our cities and in our culture? You don't tend to see large religious structures being built. You do tend to see what? Structures built around secular gods. Those things that we believe will give us gravitas or permanence in our world, in our life. Sometimes they're political in nature. Sometimes they're financial in nature. But we always sort of build things that represent some of our deepest values. And David wants God to have a better and greater house than his own. Maybe this is a genuine religious gesture on David's part. I have no idea. Maybe it's a political move on David's part. It's certainly possible. A cynical eye might read this and say, well, there's this notion, right, that if you can sort of hold God down in a place, then who can ever stand against you? And there's certainly moments across Israel's history where they begin to think about the presence of the temple as bringing that kind of security to themselves. We don't really know David's deep motives here. But we do know that David goes to Nathan the prophet 
with this vision, this idea, and, he, and Nathan's response is intriguing. It is awesome, right? This is fantastic. Great. Go do it. Your heart has to be right. Now, just put this in our context. You know, what pastor has ever turned down funds for a building project that they did not have to initiate? I mean, seriously, this is David, the king, saying, I'm going to do something awesome for God. I'm going to build a great temple. And Nathan says, that sounds just grand. I didn't have to dream about it. Go for it. Eugene Peterson says of this particular part in the story that David is about to cross this very fine line of being full of God to being full of himself. It's an interesting way of thinking about this particular moment. And so one of the very things I think that you and I need to think about uh, individually and certainly collectively even is we do need to think about this. We need to sit with this word for just a moment and ask the question of do I know in my own life, do we as a church know in our life together when we are crossing the line of being full of God's greatness to being full of our own greatness? Are you aware of those tiny steps of when you've moved Second thing, God's gift. So the first thing that God says, and this is a gift, his word is no. No. He comes to Nathan, right, in, a, in his godly way, in his prophetic way, and he, he basically instructs Nathan to go back to David with a very different answer. In fact, now David has to go back to power and speak truth to power. And that word of truth is no. You're not going to build me a house. And there are all kinds of things that are layered into this particular part of the narrative, right? But, but, we, but we learn a number of things. That, you know, David has been dreaming about what he will do for God, but God reverses the storyline to what God will do for David. And that is the orientation that you and I need to always live with inside of life. Not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. And then we live out of that, but, right, so that, but there's a reversal that has to take place. And now what's, that's what begins to happen here in this particular part of the text. God isn't actually concerned about a house for himself, but about a dwelling, rather, for his people. That's what God is concerned about. That's what he longs for. It isn't God that needs to settle down in a more permanent dwelling. It is David that needs to settle down in the permanent dwelling before the Lord. And that's the reversal that must happen. And so God says, I will give you a house. He's not talking about a greater palace for David, something grander than the home he's already built, but rather he's in talking about, he's talking about an enduring kingdom dynasty, a kingship through the generations as a gift that would become the epicenter of his peace in the world for all people. That's what God is dreaming of. It's interesting to think about that in the way we think about safety and home and peace and security. Home isn't about secure borders, but it's about the emancipation of all of life. That's God's orientation. He wants our thriving because of his presence. He wants us to live before him in such a way that we reflect his love back into the world such that all of life thrives. And that's the kingdom that God is talking about here. He's not talking about a narrow political agenda for David so that when he looks on the boundaries of his kingdom, he feels safe and secure. 
but he's talking about living in the world before him for the sake of the world. It's an act of presumption to assume that we can build a house for God, that we could somehow tie God down to our agenda, to our small visions, to our small ideas. It is an act of God's grace that he extends a far greater promise, a far more gracious promise than we would ever come up with, the promise of his own transforming presence. And this is what leads someone like Brueggemann to conclude that this text is the core of evangelical theology, of evangelical faith. How is it? How does he get there? It's simply this, that all condition around the relationship with God seems to fall away. Verse 14, speaking of the house and the line of David, God says, when he commits iniquity, I will punish, I will punish him with a rod as mortals use with blows inflicted by human beings, but I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Sit with that. Do you hear what God is promising right there, that however you live life, God says, I will never withdraw the promise. I will never withdraw the relationship. I will live graciously toward you. I will graciously bring my kingdom. It has nothing to do with what you do. I will not swerve from him. It's a beautiful display of God's gracious love. My loyalty His merciful faithfulness will not swerve like it did with Saul. This gift of kingship and kingdom, peace on earth because of God's presence will be God's gracious, unconditional doing and not your own doing. Such an important thing for us to sit with. And it's such an emancipating thing to sit with. It's such a liberating reality to sit with, to let this sink into our hearts. Because the moment you do, what you begin to real, realize is that it's, it, your missteps do not disrail God's intentions. You actually have the liberty of taking risks of loving the way God loves because of his prior love for you. That's the implication of this promise that God is giving to David. God on your side, not because you did something for him, but through his gracious doing for you. This is one of the hardest truths to sink into the human heart, that God's heart is turned toward us first. He loves us first. His openness, his love, his commitment not to swerve, regardless of the way you've lived your life, regardless of what you'll do tomorrow, God's gracious presence as absolute gift. So when you hear that, where does your mind race? Where do you run to? Do you begin to pull up all the conditional ways in which you live with God, right? Your anxieties about how you think God views your choices in life, your uh, do, do, you, do, you, do you begin to sort of, uh, sort of say, but, but, but you don't know my story? God knows your story. God knows our collective story. God knows the brokenness, the suffering that is in our world, and it is in that context, before those realities, before people like us, that he says, I will not swerve. I love you. I will do this. David's dream, God's gift. Now third, 
David's dwelling, our dwelling. This is a bit of a play on the same word because the word to dwell and the word to sit mean relatively the same thing. David sits before the Lord in the tent of the Lord, the tent of God's dwelling, and in that place of sitting before the Lord, he is what? He is awestruck by this God of grace. In other words, this is that moment of recalibration of his own soul, right? He, he is awestruck by God rather than, than being awestruck by his own wealth. I mean, he's, it's just like this moment of sort of recalibrating your life in which you understand the limitations of being a human being, the beautiful limitations of being a human being. And you understand in that that you sit before a God who delights in you, and David's awestruck. And so this is a moment of profound praise. Listen to what he says again. Think about this, right? Who, David says, who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have wrought all this greatness so that your servant may know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is no one like you. There is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. When David hears from God about this gift of God and has this experience of God, when it begins to sink into his life, he begins to take on a right space, a right proportion in his life. And he's awestruck by it. He's moved by it. He's in the presence of God, and he's not imagining all that he has to bring to God, but he's recognizing that he is a recipient of all that God has brought to him. It is so difficult to live in that space of awe, especially when things are going well, because it's in those moments that I'm more often aware of all that I have to offer and less of what God has offered me. And if I'm in a space of suffering or difficulty or loss or, you know, some place of, of struggle or failure even, I am still, what, standing before God very, very often thinking, but I must or I ought to have or I should have. And I forget that the relationship that I have with God is always initiated by him, by his love, by his grace, by his prior movement toward us. Some of you are Lauren Daigle fans, I know that. Some of them live in my house. And this is very much like that place in her song, Love Like This, where she begins to ponder this same question of awe before God. And the line goes just simply this, what have I done to deserve love like this? I can't explain what you so freely give. Is that the way you think about your life with God? The core of evangelical faith is just this notion of the gift of his grace, the gift of God's transforming presence, love as something that is given to us and for us that does not depend on your own imagination to conjure it up or your own ability to achieve it or your own ability to deserve it. It is freely given. And the moment you begin to recognize that's how God chooses to relate to you, it liberates you as a human being to love like he loves. David's emancipation occurs as he experiences himself as a recipient of the grace of God's own self, of God's own love and promise to never, ever swerve from David, from his house, or from this grand promise to bring his kingdom. Do you know emancipation like that in your life with God? 
Do you know what it's like to live before love like that? To live across your diverse circumstances of life. Sometimes there's spaces of success, sometimes spaces of loss, failure, struggle. Sometimes there's spaces of tremendous joy, experiences of love, a beautiful moment like at summer celebration when you see that glimpse of a child, right, reaching out to hold the hand of another child to sort of comfort them, expression of the body of Christ. Sometimes it's those beautiful moments and sometimes it's moments of loneliness. But do you know what it means to live before the emancipating love of God who delights in you? David's response to that love is to become one who here, at least in this moment, says, I will not swerve from that love. I will sit. I will dwell before you, this God who freely gives. His response is to dwell in the reality of this relationship with God and from here to live, to work, to dream, and to do. It is a great moment of reversal that is necessary for God's people across time and all places. So think about the salvation that God offers us for just a moment. Earlier in the service, we were confessing our sins together. and That's such an important part of what we do as Christians. And we do that. Why? Because it's a moment of sort of getting back into our lane, so to speak, right? You've heard that phrase, that expression. It's a way of sort of recalibrating our sense of who we are as human beings. We're, of course, limited. We're finite. We're not God. And it's also a moment in which we begin to say, and I have not lived consistently with love like this. I've not embraced love like this. I've not let that love of God flow through me to other people this week. There are ways that I need to think about how that's played out. And so we do that in that space of confessing our sins. But you know what? If you confine salvation to the forgiveness of sins, you are missing out. Because the salvation that God imagines for us and imagines for his people, imagines for his world, is grander. It is greater. It extends, it exceeds the forgiveness of sins. Of course it includes that. Any compelling relationship includes the forgiveness of sins. God's dream is so much greater. It is this dream of his kingdom come to earth so that our world begins to reflect the beauty and the grace of his presence his unswerving love and his commitment to bring about a human earthly reality that reflects his presence, his justice, his goodness, his truth, the beauty that he articulates. And so what do we do every week in our worship as well? We pray the Lord's Prayer and we just take those very simple commonplace words almost and we ask that his kingdom would be done on earth as in heaven. In other words, that God would dwell in our midst And by dwelling in our midst, we would be transformed by his presence in the way we actually live with each other so that we would become people that extend forgiveness the way we've been forgiven. And we would live with our resources, our food, the way we have been graciously provided for, that we would consider the hungry in our world and not just our own personal needs and just so on and so forth, that we would recognize that we live in a world of spiritual conflict and we can't deliver ourselves from that conflict. But God so graciously delivers us from temptation, from the time of trial. So we pray these things each week because of this promise that God says, I will not swerve from the promise of bringing my kingdom. So we hold God to that promise. We call it to mind for our sakes and we live on that promise. And it's a promise that's anchored in the person of who Jesus is, David's greater son and David's Lord. 
In the gospel reading this morning, the question between Jesus and the religious leadership of his day circles around this old and ancient promise made to David. Jesus is, of course, talking with the religious leaders, and they, he wants them to think about how they grasp that promise uh, and the priority of that promise, not of David's own kingship, but of the one that, J- that David actually engaged as Lord himself, that somehow that future king was David's Lord too. Jesus, the Lord in person in our world, rejected by religious and political leaders, was one in whom and through whom every interaction reflected the unswerving love of God, whether it's a moment of speaking hard truth to persons of power or whether it's a moment of speaking empathetically to those who are left out. He lifts up the poor, the needy. He brings them into the very center. He feeds the hungry. He welcomes the outsider. And when we get before this Lord, we become more ourselves, not less. And until we get before this Lord, we are less ourselves, not more. Because his greatness and love precedes and relativizes and reshapes our own. So that as we leave in this moment of benediction in just a few moments, we go out into the space of Philadelphia and this region and this world to reflect his likeness there rather than continue to take on its likeness in us. That is the call of God. And so here you are this morning in whatever circumstances you brought into the room, whatever happened in your life this past week. Some of those things might have been great and some of them hard things, some of them mediocre things. How did you live in that space? And how will you go back out into your world this week? Will you hold on to your dreams the way David was holding on to his at the very beginning of our text, so certain that he figured God out, so certain that he knew the right thing to do? Or will you, in this space of humility, dwell before the Lord who loves you and so take up your doing in the world very differently? Rather than cynicism, you live with courage. Rather than despair, you live with hope. You don't get bogged down in the losses, but you sit in loss with the knowledge that God, what? That he promises a kingdom that will come and that will endure forever because of the way his love has been manifest in the person of Jesus. So how does your experience of love like this change you in your circumstances? You know what they are. Places of plenty, want, sickness, How will an experience of love like this change the way you inhabit your life in the coming week? The way you read the newspaper or your newsfeed, the way you hear discouraging political reports, the way you read about all of the struggle and trauma in our world, how will you sit in those realities as a person who has experienced the tremendous, emancipating love of God so freely given in Jesus. It is only as we dwell in the presence of this God that we live across these circumstances with all the real people in our lives and all the real problems in our lives according to the promise of his kingdom in a way that reflects his love and his beauty back into the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to think on these things, that you would meet us and you would help us to know how you are with us 
and you would give us an experience of your great love for us in Christ. So meet us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.